This is the 17th episode of Digital Photography Life. I'm Michael Stein, and today Scott Sherman interviews photographer Mark Munch. But first, the theme music. Welcome back to Digital Photography Life. This week, I'm all alone in the studio, but Scott has recorded such a terrific and long interview with photographer Mark Munch that there is no time left for me. But there's plenty of that time next week. So before we get to the interview, I just wanted to cover a couple minor details. You can find our show on iTunes or photography.personallifemedia.com. You can email us at digitalphotographylife at gmail.com. You can find detailed show notes at scottsphotoblog.com and digitalphotographylife.com. So let's get right to it. So we are on the phone with Mark Much. I got that correct, right? You pronounced it right. A very accomplished photography. You can check him out at muchphotography.com. It's M E. I'm sorry, M-U-E-N-C-H, photography.com. And I'll have a link to that, like everything else, over on scottsphotoblog.com. Mark, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, it's good to be talking shop. Yeah, well, we got a lot of questions for you. Um, looking at your website, I can see you've done a lot of interesting things, and you came recommended by a friend for the show, so the pressure is on. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll try to live up. <laughs> Now, looking at MuchPhotography.com, the first thing that struck me was you are not the only Much out there who is photographing, right? That's right. Yeah, there's there's uh, three generations. My grandfather started this uh, back in the 30s when he came across from Germany and then ended up hitchhiking across the country and fell in love with Monument Valley, I think is where it was, and um, started taking pictures out there and for Arizona Highways. And he drug my dad along, and my dad is David Munich, and he figured that it was quite beautiful out there as well. So he started taking pictures. I'm making a long story short. And so, uh, and then he did the same thing to me, or you know, my parents did, my mother and father did, bring me out on trips that they would go on and pho- photograph in the West. And so I kind of developed the bug as well. So here I am. All right. So do, do I do I have the best Munich for for the show on? Should I? Switch Absolutely. out with one of the other yeah, there, okay. there really aren't any others. <laughs> no. Well, some of the work on your site is incredible. Um, and I want to talk about how you go about capturing that kind of image. And we're going to give our listeners today specific uh, hints and tips on improving their fall photography. But you've done a lot of things. Um, you have a, a number of books out. Uh, looks like some are books that you have individually done and some are with your dad, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And you have photographed. I see you also are, are, are a sports photographer. I uh, That's probably what gave me my little edge, or at least that I felt good about doing something different from what my dad had done and my grandfather had done. So I, I love to photograph mountain climbing and, and snow skiing and some of the outdoor adventure type of sports. Not I don't I never really got into football or, or basketball. So okay, so kind of combining almost the landscape and the sports stuff together. Right. And you've worked for a lot of names people would know, Leo Burnett, Kodak, 
uh, Ogilvy and Mather, a big advertising firm here in the States, uh, Time Incorporated. So you've been around for a long time, although you're a young guy still, right? I, I'm 40. <laughs> it feels young to me. Yeah, I'm, I still feel good. And it it seems amazing to me when somebody says, well, you know, what was your first assignment? And I had to say, well, it was 20-some years ago. It's a little scary. <laughs> so it's been a while. Yeah. Before the wife, before the kids. Yep. And where it all started. And one thing I want to get to, because we're not going to talk about this till later in the interview, but um, towards the end, I want to ask you about how listeners can have you critique their landscape photos because you work in association with Smug Mug at times, right? That's right. They're a sponsor of the show, and we were fans of their site way before they ever came on with us. Um, uh, you offer a critiquing service so that our listeners can send in some shots to you, and there's directions on the site that explain how best to submit them, and you will give them feedback on their images. Yeah, it's uh, it's a friend of mine came up with the idea when we were uh, talking about what was going on and how to critique on the uh, on the uh, Degrin website, right? Which is Digital Grin, and he decided that you know why don't we take this from the point of view where people can get just your opinion rather than when you post an image on Degrin normally you can get everybody's opinion, which is great as well. But nevertheless, uh, we started this. Uh, some time ago now, and we create galleries every one or two months. And with, if your picture is in that gallery, then I'll go through it and pick it out, possibly, possibly not, and uh, give a somewhat detailed critique of what I like about it technically or don't like about it technically, but also subjectively what, what I find that interests me and, and what technical parts work to make the subjective part work and so on. So I try and mix both technical and subjective aspects into it rather than just being a critique on the technique. And I looked at that thread online, and I have to say it appealed to me right away. I took a online photography course once with a photographer who's very well-known and respected, won't say his name. It was the same kind of um, process where you would submit photos and get critiques, and he always had very nice things to say about my photos, which I thought was you know, terrific and never had much criticism. So I, I loved that until I saw that he never had any criticism about anybody's photos and said nice things about all of them. When I read yeah. your critiques, I think they're really honest. You'll say, you know, this part of the picture is not bright enough. Uh, the composition may be a little bit off. Uh, I would suggest doing it this way. So that's really valuable that, you know, you're certainly not mean, but you're honest and you lend, a, you know, a very seasoned eye. Yeah, I, I think it was important I learned years ago that if you're going to give a critique, you can't just say that you don't like it. You have to say why, and otherwise don't open your mouth, or in this case, type. So I try to stick to that. I don't always do that, but you know, sometimes you can't explain everything you think or feel, but right. I try and get as close as I can and, and be honest, like you say, because I, I learn more when somebody is honest with me. And you have to take that honesty, as you, you know, with a grain of salt and realize it's one person's opinion. So I, I encourage people to go get as many opinions about a, one of their images as possible. So mine's just one of them. And photography is like any other art. Helps if you have a, a thick skin. Yeah, but that, that thick skin comes with tears. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, you've, you know, I, I look at your resume Mark, and I see that, you know, it's full of these very high-tier 
publishers and companies with whom you've worked. But I'm sure that until you got to that point, there were rejections along the way. And even today, you know, you may have a client and maybe, you know, they don't like your first shot at something or they, you know, ask you to take it in a different direction. So you still deal with it, don't you? Yeah, you you deal with it. It never ends. You're absolutely right. That's uh, And it's actually, I think, amazing that over the last decade, I would say that because of the number of photographers that are out there now, more than there were 20 years ago, uh, it's it's more than more than it used to be. Just because the buyers or the ad agencies, the art directors, all have a greater pool to, to choose from, and and that encourages better work as well. So it's it's really a catch-22. Even though there are more photographers, it uh, what it really does, it, what it should do to a photographer is make them work harder, right? Better and produce something something more meaningful. So no, your work is outstanding. I mean, I know there's, you know, several million pictures on Flickr, but no matter how many people who are out there trying it, you know, there is something that will always differentiate an artist from even a very skilled craftsperson. And uh, you have that eye mark. So it's a beautiful site and I'll link to it so people can see your pictures and, you know, look at your books and uh, you sell custom prints on the site, which um, can be purchased signed and, you know, they're works of art. Great. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. I'm going to start saving my money now. Yeah. And so for it, it's either a camera or a print, right? I can't decide which one. Hey, well, you know, it's one month's mortgage payment. What the heck? Um, so you're living the dream. A lot of people, you know, would love to be doing this full time. Are you enjoying yourself? I am. I I do have to uh, remind myself once in a while when, as I'm a freelance photographer, that the uh, monthly check isn't always the same. Yes. So there's there's that side of it. And on the other hand, when I'm out getting up early in the morning and traipsing through a dew-covered meadow, you know, that's that's where my blood's boiling and I'm excited and and uh, want to go back to when I'm not there. So, yes, I love the job and I love uh, being around the people that also in, enjoy it too. So uh, it's one of the things that has kind of spun off of photography and I never expected it when I went into uh, the profession and that is that there would be such a large group of people that are so infatuated with it as well. Well, I think and, that it's probably digital that did that. But yeah. it, it, it's always been such a fascinating hobby. So, yeah, I think you're right. You know, it is the digital revolution. It's the democratizing of the technology. You know, back when I first picked up photography, it was expensive and space consuming and a little bit dangerous to have a dark room at home like I did. <laughs> but um, I remember the cat was an issue, right? Because cats That's used true. to love to drink developer, developing <laughs> liquid. But um, it's, it's like radiator fluid, is yep, that right? It antifreeze, right? Tastes good, but doesn't really doesn't do much for make them. Make them healthy. But you know, now people can pick up for a couple of hundred dollars. You know, an amazing camera. They can get you know Adobe Photoshop Express for seventy dollars and be able to do amazing work with it. So you know, there's just so much more attention to, to it. Do you teach? I teach workshops, okay. and, and I've done that for about 10, 12 years now, and they are in places out where uh, there's beautiful scenery. And then we come – there's different kinds of workshops, and the, and the ones that I probably do more teaching are the uh, print workshops where we're in a classroom and discussing mm -hmm. Photoshop and, and have more time in lecturing and discussing. But the, the field 
workshops are very exciting. So yeah. it's it's one of the things that everybody likes to do is go out and photograph. So oh, I love it. It's a taking a photo workshop if you can get away for a week or even a weekend. It's it's a transformative experience. It, it really takes your skills up to a whole nother level. And like you say, meeting the other photographers, meeting the teachers, it brings a, a, a richness to the experience, to a hobby that sometimes can be a little solitary and isolating, especially when you're doing it on the computer. You know, it, it really mm-hmm. brings a three-dimensionality to it, which is wonderful. It is. It's it, it, And when you're out in the field with everybody who is excited to be there, and you're talking about something that you know a lot of a lot of people don't have more than a couple minutes maybe even a week to discuss what's on their mind about a camera or right. photograph because they're in a different profession they could be in the medical field in the restaurant business who knows and so when they're able to focus and and forget about everything else and concentrate on this one hobby that they love it's uh, it becomes uh, very entertaining so and when people go to your website to uh, muchphotography.com. Uh, there is a tab for workshops, and I see you have some upcoming workshops in Utah, but not just Utah, wild Utah. Wild Utah. Yeah, there's Utah there's gone wild. Parts of Utah. And, and uh, it's hard to imagine Utah gone wild, but. It's a bunch of Mormons in bikinis, that, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> it's kind of a conundrum. But there's a part where few people go. That's the wild side that we're going to. So it's it's an area out by Capitol Reef National Park. And uh, this is where the uh, first uranium and I, it was mined out there and maybe not the very first in the country. But the guys that went out and explored that country and mined it, that's where the stories, the wild stories come in. So there's all kinds of interesting things from uh, Indian artifacts to petroglyphs uh, to uh, ruins, to caves and arches, and um, basically all these frozen sand dunes that we go traipsing around. I would love to. This looks so great. I'm just reading your description, the towns you go to, the kind of things you shoot. Um, it sounds great. Ten spots in that workshop as of this moment, according to your workshop, three are left. It's in early October, so if people have some time off in early October, they should check that out. And then they can report back on the show about just how wild Utah gets. That's so right. you're you're a Canon guy, right? Yeah. You, you are, do you love uh, your Canon equipment? Did you just was it another thing where your dad and his dad shot with Canon and you just uh, inherited the the fondness for it? What about Canon draws you to it? No, it was uh, Canon started. Uh, I actually started that in the in the family, but no, my grandfather's passed away, so he never had the luxury of of uh, shrinking his. Uh, his equipment. He he used an old uh, handheld four by five. Wow. Imagine that. So you get two shots, and in between those two, you got to pull the holder out. What was the manufacturer of that? Uh, Linhoff. Okay. Well, that's you can't do much better. People still today crave those cameras. And what yeah, about? Yeah. No, they're, they're, the lenses were sharp, and yep. you know the large format. And then my father used a four by five most of the time. Oh, okay. As well. So uh, I started that way with a four by five field camera, and once I started getting serious about photographing action, skiing specifically, the uh, EOS first Canon film fast focus uh, camera was introduced, the EOS one. And so that's when I bought that and I could shoot it five frames a second. Well, that is going uh, back a ways. That's going way back. And that was my first Canon. So uh, after that, it was pretty much uh, 
Canon all the way for everything I did 35 millimeter. And then when when digital became a reality, I uh, broke into the digital realm with uh, the, the first serious camera I used was the uh, Canon 1DS Mark II. Okay. Um, up until that point, I kind of played around with digital and became familiar with it, but didn't really use it 100%. So. And what, what's your go-to camera today? It's the Mark III. Okay. And it's a beautiful camera. I've shot with it. Yeah, it's it, it, it's very uh, handy when it comes to uh, putting accessories on it and doing uh, unique things with it. It has all the bells and whistles, and then it's strong. You can drop it and kick it, and it still works. So, But you don't recommend it? No, you probably <laughs> should kick your camera. Hey, here's a good question for you. This is always a point of controversy. Do you put a UV filter on all of your lenses for protection? Uh, speaking of dropping yes. cameras, no, it's I, controversial. I know people who don't do it. I know people who think it serious photographers who think it detracts from image quality. Others who think their lens hood offers as good protection or better. So I don't, I used to occasionally, but you know what it drives me nuts is the time it takes to unscrew it mm-hmm. and put on the polarizer. Mm-hmm. I primarily use a polarizer for any filtering. Um, and so that transition doing that, let's say 15 times in the course of a, right. an hour when right. you're packing stuff in and moving and packing stuff out would drive anybody nuts. So that's probably my main reason. But I, I have some blemishes on some expensive lenses that have probably uh, occurred mm. because I didn't have it properly covered. All right, so life is full of risk. Yeah. But you, yeah, you which, like, you like to shoot you take, landscape. You like extreme sports. So, you know, you're, you're not risk adverse. So what the heck? It's better. It's better than missing the shot. Well, that's it. Yeah. If if you have to do ten things before you can get a picture, then uh, you know, right? Uh, you might miss it. If versus two. So. so you you love the Mark III. It's a it's a sexy beast of a camera. It is a beast. Do you have a little point and shoot that you like to carry for family things, or just so you always have a camera on you, or do you take those pictures with your phone? Well, I uh, <laughs> I haven't bought the iPhone because my whole family's stuck on Verizon. So that's, that's all right. The reason, yeah, there's cameras that have much better phones than the iPhone. Uh, yeah, better phones. I mean, better cameras. Duh. Better cameras. Yeah. Well, <laughs> phones the, that have better Blackberry, cameras. The, the Blackberry had a pretty good one. And um, so that, that's what I use. I use those occasionally. They're fun to have a camera on your phone. Uh-huh. I think, uh, I think the best thing that could happen to the industry is to put a phone in a new G11. I've talked a lot about that, that I think that the um, on the show we've talked about I, – my prediction is that the uh, phones are going to cannibalize the entry-level point-and-shoot market and that a Canon or an Icon needs to get into a strategic partnership with one of these uh, phone companies and make a yeah. phone that is equal parts sort of a you know mid-range point-and-shoot and camera, and that will be the best of both worlds. Yeah, I I could see that happening. That's a good point. I, we we talked last week about for all the for all the discussion about specs and uh, equipment and polarizing filters and DSLRs. The best camera is the one you have with you, and since people right. always have their phone with them, they'll be able to document a lot more of their life. So, do you have a point and shoot that you're using these days, or is it kind of the DSLR or nothing? No, I have I, I kind of have three versions. I have the the SD uh, uh, 800 and 850, and then 900. I've used those. You know, they spun off of what was called the Elf originally, right? And so I, I actually had a two Elfs before they went digital. 
and uh, love that size because it's really a pocket yeah. camera. Well, there used to be the digital elf. They they kind of gave it that hybrid name. Yeah, that's right. I guess yeah, I forgot about that. I had but a digital yeah, elf. It, it's a great size, so yep. you can stick it in your pocket, you know, in your back pocket, wherever you want, basically, and it's a tough little guy. And so, I, I really enjoy that size of camera. The the G series cameras. Um, I have, and I've enjoyed the image quality, and I have pictures that I've used uh, to make, you know, sales of on stock imagery quite often. And, and you can take four or five, stitch them together, and nobody knows it wasn't taken with a more yeah. expensive camera. We do, we just had this right. conversation on our, our last show. Uh, Canon introduced the new G series, the G11, and then the uh, SD90. And I was talking about, I was excited about the SD camera because it. Um, it's essentially the same mechanics as the G11, but in a pocketable factor. I think that'll be a beautiful camera to have. Well, there goes some more of my money. Uh, sorry about that. And I do yeah. want, but the, but you know, save it. Don't buy the G11 because um, you know if you want to. My feeling is you have the DSLR for the days you want to schlep around something, but when you just want something light, that uh, S90 sounds like it's going to be a terrific camera for the serious enthusiast you know it shoots jpeg and raw so that once you know that compact camera shoots raw you know it's talking your language well here's this is the interesting fact that i that always drove me nuts because this decision or this argument came up in many workshops you know they people would go out and they'd love that g-series camera and they'd mm -hmm. start you know with a seven and then buy a nine and ten and, as i have and and everybody said you know here here you are standing out on a viewpoint and it's beautiful and you've got your three cameras, which one do you use? And, mm -hmm. and very few would grab the middle range camera. Right. right. And so it, what it forced me to do was can try and figure out why that camera had a place. And it really, for me, it came down to the chip size. If the sensor's larger, you're going to have higher quality pixels and you're going to have better image quality. And so the little SD cameras, as far as I know, their chip size is much smaller. And they, I don't know the exact percentage, but so you're going to get better image quality with that medium range chip size and that, in this case, the G series cameras. So the only time you're really going to need that camera is if you don't have a DSLR, the bigger, the biggest chip of right. all. You know, why would you compromise something like image quality if you're going to start lugging around bigger equipment? So the only reason I use it and got it is for these long hikes I do or, or mountain climbing or something where I want something tiny, yeah. but I don't want to sacrifice as much image quality. So it's kind of a, a hybrid uh, use, and, and, and it comes in very handy because you get decent image quality to make a professional digital file with, but um, it's not a pocket camera. So No, it's that in-between. I think it's good. Mark, for the people who are not going to be DSLR users, you know, they're not mm -hmm. going to get into swapping out lenses and buying, you know, external flashes and uh, at least not now. You know, they want to start off with something that's a self-contained unit, but get the very highest picture quality they can. I think that's who should be buying cameras like that. Maybe those people will eventually step up into, you know, a digital rebel or something like it. But um, I agree with you. I, I think it's that middle range. It's a little bit. It just it doesn't come much into use. And the the Canon I was just talking about, I called it the SD90. I looked it up. It's the S90 that that will have the same sensor as the G11, the same quality optics. Although I don't think the zoom range is as broad, 
But, you know, that'll be the Nirvana for me, you know, a pocketable camera with a nice big sensor that takes great pictures that shoots in RAW so that right away, if I am losing a little something, at least I can recover it in RAW rather than yep. being stuck with a JPEG. All right. Well, we've been geeking out on equipment too much. <laughs> Let's talk photography, shall we? It's a, it's a good field. Let's do it. But first, let us pause for this quick break. So, you know, as a landscape photographer in part, um, do you find that people are often looking to buy autumnal pictures, those, you know, beautiful fall scenes um, out of proportion to other seasons? Or, or, or how does that tend to work? Because I always think that that's like the archetypical time to go out there with the camera is when the leaves are changing. That's a good question. I don't know if if people have bought images, our images, uh, more because you know more fall images than other seasons. Uh, it's certainly as popular as spring, and I don't know if if one mm-hmm. or the other. And and it could be just the color. Mm-hmm. There's more color in the landscape, so we're attracted to that. Oh yeah. Of course, we uh, we enjoy the color and the contrast. And in the autumn, at least uh, in most parts of the country, the air clears out and you get that nice crisp contrast in the air, plus you get the color. So it's kind of a double uh, plus, and therefore it gives it more more interest in um, other seasons. I I think that the uh, the cycle is what's exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, here you've, you've been through uh, summer and the warmth and the humidity and, and a change of cool air is, is always exciting. And the fact that winter's then going to follow. And so it's that time of year when, when things change, I don't know why it seems like things are changing more in the fall than it would in the winter oh, <laughs> or the spring or the summer, but because you know, in the other seasons, it, about it. in the other seasons, you know, your winter, it changes, but it's all changing to white mm-hmm. <laughs> in the summer. And spring, you know, most of it's green, except for the flowers, but it's in autumn when you get those insane colors, you know, especially if you live in a place that is um, deciduous, right, with um, your leaves that are going to die off and turn the oranges and the reds and the yellows. I mean, I spent three years in Vermont, Mark, so, you know, it makes you a little nutty about fall. Yeah, yeah, you have great areas. <laughs> where do you Where do you live? I'm in Santa Barbara, so we're, <laughs> we're actually the... We have the least yes. change in, in anywhere in the States, I think. We we don't get our fall color until our liquid amber trees turn red, and it's not until December. So uh, it's kind of interesting. So have you traveled specifically to do some autumnal shooting? Yeah, I usually start uh, occasionally in September when I'm going way up north in Alaska or Canada, and their trees start turning that time of year, the end of September. And then in the States here, it's typically mid-October, right around my birthday, October 14th, um, when the autumn leaves are good in Colorado, Nevada, Utah, parts of uh, Montana. And, of course, it depends on the year. It all happens within two weeks, it seems. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, the, the good part about autumn is that if you think you're at a bad time and nothing has turned, you can change elevation and find where the autumn is turning or has turned. So, right. Cha- for wait, example, wait, I got, I got to highlight that change elevation is the first official tip on this interview that was elevation. supposed to be about improving your fall photography before we started geeking out. So, change your elevation. I never thought of that. Yeah, if if you're up in uh, the Tetons, for example, and 
the valley has not turned yet, you can take a drive up over the pass uh, towards Idaho, and uh, chances are there might be some pockets of aspens up there that have begun to turn, turn yellow or, or orange or in various shades. Yes, my co-host Michael and I once went on a fall shooting expedition one day in Vermont where we had the mountains, and we actually had the experience where on, you know, ground level for, you know, your first couple of hundred feet. We had beautiful, vivid fall colors, but we hiked to the top of a mountain and we're shooting um, winter scenarios with snow on the same day. Gray sticks. Snow yeah. and frost. It was beautiful. Yeah, so, uh, Shenandoah National Park is one of my favorite locations, and there's a great place where you can change uh, what you're, what season you're in. Basically, if you're down in the valley, you're, you could be looking at late summer, and then you go up to the top, and you're almost in winter, like you say, on one of the viewpoints. And mm -hmm. then right in between, uh, most years, you can find all the uh, all the trees that have that are kind of out of the wind in pockets uh, where the cool air sits, and those are the ones that get the most color, um, kind of in, in the mid-transition period, uh, at least that I've found. Uh, the, the, the odds of, of finding color are greater in those areas. So, so a, you know, a broader sort of tip about shooting, and this show is going to come out in um, probably this interview, Mark will go on air, somewhere late August, early September, you know, before sort of the the, the heaviest fall season here in the States. But that is part of the point. Plan ahead, right? Think about um, when you'd like to shoot. Google your area to see traditionally when the colors have started to pop, uh, you know, at their highest peak in the season. And if you need to, make plan your travel, plan your time off. Um, you know, don't wait for, you know, the third weekend in October to decide, hey, I, I want to shoot some, you know, autumnal shots. Yeah, it's, it does help the plan. And they've got all the kinds of websites, most of these places. You know, as you know, if you lived in Vermont, people follow that cycle so well and document it on the Internet. So there's even live cams in some places. And so it's it's easier now than it ever was to uh, to hit the autumn just right. And, and And if you look back five or six years, that'll help as well to find out when it came on those years and and maybe why. Sometimes if it rains a lot in – January the year before, mm -hmm. that means the color won't be good the following mm -hmm. fall. Um, locals have that kind of knowledge, and if you dig deep through Google, you might find some of that. Yeah, people are out there usually making predictions for when they think the color will peak, and, and, and it's good to plan for that. So, mm -hmm. what else do you, what else do you like to keep in mind that's special for shooting fall pictures? Well, it, you know, most of the time, the fall colors look the best when they're backlit. And so if I'm traipsing through the woods and I'm, I'm looking for a, a grove of aspens, let's say, or a particular tree that's, that's brighter, um, I'm going to try and get to it when the light is either from the side or, or from, from behind the tree. And that really lets the leaves glow, if you will, and it gives it that translucence that's so intriguing. If you look at an autumn picture, and, and this goes is probably the same with all landscape photography, and the light is flat, it's reflecting straight back into the camera, and so it's bouncing off of everything without giving much texture or form or mm -hmm. shape to the subject. And so when you're photographing in the fall, it's pretty much the same thing. However, so the landscape's going to look better if it's side lit or backlit, but 
the leaves will be uh, translucent as well. So that's kind of the extra benefit. And if you use a polarizing filter and turn it just right, then uh, you'll eliminate all that glare bouncing off of the leaves and, and you'll get nothing but nice saturated luminescent aspen or maple leaves on your trees. Now, we were talking about a polarizing filter, coincidentally enough, last week also on the show, a circular, I assume you mean a circular polarizer? Is that what you like? If, if you want your autofocus lenses to work, yes. Okay. Use a circular polarizer. Uh, do you, do you, is that what you use or do you use one of the... I do now, okay. yes, because there's, there's times, I use a lot of manual focus now, Okay. Uh, even with the Canon and so forth, but there are times when you want autofocus to work, and so autofocus will only work through a circular polarizer. And with a circular polarizer, you can also dial in the amount of effect you want, right? That's right. If you turn turn it uh, one way or the other, you'll notice that uh, you're you're basically canceling out light or you're allowing light through. So it depends on where the where in the spin your polarizer is. Now, you can disagree with me on this because that's why you're on to give your perspective. I always say to people, you know, it, it's typical that um, some of the listeners of our show or even the people I meet socially knowing that I'm a enthusiast will get their DSLRs and their first question is, what can I buy? Right? They want to pimp it out and they want to spend money on this hobby and often filters come up. Um, and I always say, uh, you know, you can consider a UV filter to protect your lens. Many people do. I'm with you, Mark. I don't use one. I don't think they're worth any loss of image quality. I find them more of a pain than not. Um, you know, I always say, like, I don't want to spend $1,000 on a lens and then put a $6 piece of glass in front of it. It just doesn't right. sing to me, that idea. But um, if you want to get into filters, I think a circular circular, circular polarizing filter, had a little problem there, um, is the best sort of all-around filter in terms of genuine usefulness. You know, not gimmicky, um, something that, especially if you're doing landscape, outdoor photography comes in handy for a lot of different things. So is that, would that sort of your recommendation be, or is there another filter you think gets is even more useful to have? No, I think that tops the, tops the list. The, uh, the tip though is to get, and this is what will cost you a little extra, but I get the Hoya filter that's circular. Okay. I get a thin one so that it doesn't take up as much room and it doesn't vignette if you have a widening right. lens. If you get a normal, thick polarizing filter, it protrudes from the end of the barrel of the lens, and sometimes on some lenses that'll end up vignetting, which is basically little dark corners in uh, your pictures when you get them back. And the nice the thing, thing, the nice thing I was going to say, if you want to know what the thinnest filter is, it's going to be usually the most expensive. That's right. So you, you don't have to you don't have to study the specs. Just as you go up that Hoya line from the thirty dollar filter to the eighty to the one hundred and sixty dollar filter, guess what you're paying that money for? You're paying for those advanced optics that let them make it the you know width of a hair. And then if you want to pay even more, you get the uh, multi coated super multi coated mm -hmm. on both sides. Mm. And and sometimes well most polarizing filters are only super multi-coated on the outside of the oh. filter. I didn't, I didn't and, even get to look at that class. 
What does that what start to What happens is the light comes in and it bounces off the front element of your lens back into the polarizing filter, mm-hmm. back into the inside of the polarizing filter, and then you'll get glare from that. You mm-hmm. can, depending on where you're angling or pointing your camera. So so I get the super multi-coated on both sides. On your 77 millimeter lenses? Right. <laughs> I so had, a couple, yeah, a couple exactly. hundred bucks, right? I, I used to have an 85 millimeter and thank God that's no longer in my bag. But. It's like the size of a Frisbee. Yeah. You would need the filter. Um, so that's probably a couple hundred, Mark? I believe so, yes. It's a beautiful thing. I hope you take good care of that. I do. Yeah, <laughs> I actually had to get a couple of them because occasionally they get scuffed when you're shoving cameras in your bag and running from moose. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so if somebody's going out to shoot their fall pictures... Um, they're going to want to bring their best camera. For most of our listeners, that is a DSLR. Mark, um, bring that polarizing filter. Uh, what else do you like to have in your bag? Uh, I like to have a, a flash. Mm-hmm. and Or it depends on what how big an area you're lighting up, but you could have just a little reflector disc. And that allows you to photograph close-ups of the leaves, patterns, and whatnot, and put a little fill light in there. And so uh, uh, on-camera flash, I, I typically use the uh, uh, extension cord and mount that to the top of my uh, camera, and then I can take my flash and hold it wherever I want it to give it a little side light rather than straight on camera. But uh, anything to get a little fill light in there will will help because, as I mentioned, some of the better light is backlighting on those leaves. And so if you can fill it just a little bit, it helps. Now, I'm a Canon user, too. Um, One of my gripes about the Canon DSLRs versus the Nikons is the Nikons uh, have integrated wireless flash capabilities, Mm -hmm. whereas with the Canons, you have to buy an accessory that goes onto the hot shoe so that you can trigger your flash wirelessly. So they get an extra 160 bucks out of you if you want to do that. Now, I always imagined if I was more serious, I'd spend that $160. I wouldn't want that wire, but you use the wired version? Well, yeah, I do because the, the as far as I know, the uh, the, the $160 contraption is uh, uh, has to be within a 45-degree angle of the front of the camera. And so occasionally, quite often, I'm holding the flash down below behind the camera. And so the uh, it wouldn't trigger the flash if it was behind that that IR sink. Huh. I so didn't know about that. I have to use the little cable, and then I can put it anywhere. Uh-huh. The other interesting thing about Canon is that the flash or the strobe system uh, has the newer ones have the capability of syncing at high speeds. Right. And so you can you can use the fill flash during the day on a shutter speed of over. 250th of a second. And this is important because you want to use a fast shutter speed during the day to make the bright clouds, let's say, the right exposure. If you do that with the aperture, let's say uh, aperture of f5.6 is stopped down to 11, what you're going to do is cut the amount of light coming from your strobe. And if you can, it's easier if you think of the the uh, the control for the amount of light from the strobe is aperture, and the control for the ambient light is your shutter speed. It's a ratio of those two. Mm-hmm. 
So basically, I have to use high high shutter speed sync on the Canon uh, in order to use the flash fill on anything over a 250th of a second. Um, if I do that, uh, what happens to the strobe is that it loses some of the power mm -hmm. because it's trying to, for some technical reason, I don't know exactly what it is, but you do lose some of the power when you go to a high speed. So it's it's a bit of a give and take when you're when you're trying to use flash fill during the day. Mm -hmm. Although so I do I think in general, um, people underutilize flash outdoors. You know, most people think flash is for indoors, outdoors stick to natural light. But I'm a big uh, proponent of uh, what Rick Salmon his phrase is "get flashy outdoors." He's trademarked <laughs> that phrase, right? So you know, really That's thinking right. about fill light, catch light. Um, it, it is a powerful tool. It's basically like HDR. Mm -hmm. You are taking a high dynamic range scene and you're minimizing that, uh, that range by filling in the shadows. So, so instead of doing it in post in Photoshop, you mm -hmm. can do it right in camera with a flash. So where, where do you stand on gradient filters? Speaking of effects that can be achieved through HDR... Um, rather than the old-fashioned way, are you a, a graduated filter guy? I I use them conservatively only because I can mask in Photoshop. So right. it's, uh, quite often it's easier for me to just take three exposures and take one for the sky, which is darker, and then one for the shadows, which is lighter, and then uh, and in between maybe, and then blend them together so I don't have to carry the uh, gradated filter, and then the mount, the holder for the gradated filter, and spend the time, once again, threading that onto the front of my camera yeah. and taking the time to set that all up. This is another thing we were talking about on the show just, I think this was two shows ago, more and more people doing that, not using the gradated filter, but, you know, doing it in Photoshop. Either, do you do it through an HDR workflow or just through a traditional sort of layering and masking? There, there's a couple different methods, and without getting too long-winded, I think the basic is if you if you have a scene where you can get away with two exposures and, and you don't have tons of detail that you're blending like a tree, right. then masking is very, mm -hmm. very powerful. You can, you can take those two pictures, stack them in Photoshop, and then mask out the part you don't want. Um, if you have a lot of detail around the area that's being blended, and a tree is a perfect example, if you're looking up through a tree into the sky, you've got all those sticks and that fine detail, and, and half of it's dark like the sticks, and half of it's light like the sky, it's going to take forever to blend those, especially mm -hmm. if you're learning how to mask. Right. So in that scenario, I use a uh, software called Photomatics, mm -hmm. and... There's two options in Photomatics. One is for HDR, and then you have to use what's called tone mapping. And the other is exposure blending. And I recommend, especially for those beginning with this process, is to use Photomatics and use the exposure blending. And this works the best with three exposures, all two stops apart. So if you come to a scene and it's the middle of the day and there's a beautiful autumn scene and you're looking at the trees and there's white, bright white clouds above the trees and maybe some dark, dark shadows under the trees, 
you take your normal exposure, daylight in the autumn, maybe F8 at 500th of a second, 100 ISO, and you change your shutter speed, two stops, darker. So you go from a 500th to a 2,000th of a second, take another picture, and then do the opposite. And you open up the lens and let in more light for the shadows. So you go from a 500th to a 250th to a 125th. And at a 125th at F8, you take another shot. Now you have three exposures bracketed two stops apart. And those and that scenario works very well in, uh, in what will give you the HDR effect or the high dynamic range look. And does the exposure blending give you that sort of more naturalistic look as opposed to the sometimes surrealistic look you can get with HDR? That's right. That's that's a good explanation of it. It seems to be more naturalistic, and um, you don't have to then go through the second process of what's called tone mapping to make your HDR look look good. And photomatics um, is, I think, probably the premier application. Last time I went shopping for it, I think it was a $99 application. Um, at that time, did not work within Photoshop. I think, does it now work as a plugin? Do you know, or...? Well, it, uh, I don't know if don't it works know. as a plugin in Photoshop, but what comes with Photoshop, the highly overlooked, is Bridge. And from within Bridge, if you right-click on those three exposures, you can send it through Photoshop. So it's... If Photoshop it's, can do HDR. I don't know. Yes, I don't can. remember how, but and I don't know why Photomatics is generally considered superior, but Photoshop has some HDR capability. I, you know, I've experimented a little bit with both, and not a whole lot, but the photomatics, uh, because of the exposure blending, is probably mm-hmm. worth the money. But the HDR process in photomatics has the tone mapping, which is uh, far superior to what Photoshop gives you in its workflow or its series of uh, its protocol, I guess, if you will. Um, the, and the guy that makes it work the best that I've seen is a, is a guy named Ben Wilmore. Oh, he's genius. Um, and, yeah, he makes the Photoshop version of HDR work the mm-hmm. best. And, and it, You know, the, the biggest tip on that, I think, is that if you do the process through Photoshop, you're not going to like what you end up with out of without going back into Photoshop and mm-hmm. adding the mm-hmm. right contrast and mm-hmm. doing the, the normal processing right. you would do to a raw file. I find it comes out looking like a raw file, and mm-hmm. then you've got to tweak it the way you normally would. So, yeah. so you got to do a lot more work. Yeah, Ben Wilmore, I should mention, he has a great DVD out on how to uh, – I'll, I'll try to link to it in the notes if I can find it – on how to do HDR. shows you how to do it in Photoshop, shows you how to do it in Photomatics. Mm-hmm. And it really was one of those things where I, I was actually traveling in the car on a cross-country trip – with my partner and kids, and I was watching that in the front seat to entertain myself. And I got so incredibly jazzed that I had to find somewhere where I could go download Photomatic so that in the car I could start playing with it while he was doing while I was watching the DVD on the same computer because it's just fascinating stuff. Now, we haven't talked about HDR in a while on the show. There was one thing you kind of quickly went by um, in your description. It's a good description of how to do HDR. So I want you to just point it out a little bit more. You mentioned when you change your exposures to change the shutter speed, not the aperture, which some people might think, okay, you know, I'll darken this by, you know, closing up the aperture. Why is that important 
that you leave the aperture consistent through the three exposures? You have to leave the aperture the same unless, well, put it this way, if you change the aperture in any camera, in any lens, it's going to change the field of view. So it's it's very slight, and normally you won't change it. But, I mean, I'm sorry, normally you won't notice it. But when you align two files up, pixel for pixel in Photoshop, there's a difference, and the right. pixels won't align. Right. Or photo What's happening is, you know, it's yeah, or photograph. It's it's the uh, focus is really changed. You know, your depth of field, and right. so that that changes the the shape of things as as you change the aperture. So right. by changing the shutter speed, nothing moves, and and it allows the the software to align all the pixels up just right. Yeah, that's something you have to remember, is to uh, just change the shutter speed. I've made that mistake. I changed the aperture, and then I went home and I realized I had three different pictures. <laughs> yeah. Here here so here's a little workaround. If you take a scene and you know you're you're typically blending just your exposure to get the to fulfill this high dynamic range scene, you're taking multiple exposures bracketed with your shutter speed, right? Well, you can do the same thing with focus now and where you're going to change your focus point and that is where you, you take two exposures, you're on a tripod, and you focus on the foreground, take a picture, and then you change your focus, and you focus on the background, and you take another one. Well, what you can do now in Photoshop is stack those two files, and it will align the changed pixels. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if if you knew how to do that, I might be getting a little deep, but if you did that, if you had three exposures or two exposures where you change the aperture, you could do that step first before you blend them. So mm -hmm. um, just something to think about if, if somebody knows at all what uh, 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 blending the exposures is and how to use it. That's one little workaround. Now, just now, I think was the first time you mentioned the T word, which is another piece of equipment that people are always asking about, a tripod. Um, in general, I'm not a huge fan of tripods um, just because I think so many people buy them and then almost never use them. But we're talking yeah. about landscape photography now where I think tripods definitely have a very serious place, especially when you're thinking of doing HDR and you need those three shots. Some people like to take five shots. You need them perfectly in the same position uh, to line up. So how, how often do you find yourself using a tripod for your nature photography? I, I kind of went through the a revolution, if you will, because I started, you know, everything I did when I learned was on a tripod. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, it was because I was w using a 4x5 field camera. So all the work was done on a tripod. Yeah, and that's, then, it's, it's not a light throwaway camera. <laughs> no, the field cameras, you know, it's big, and it takes a while to unfold out of the bag. Mm -hmm. And you're shooting four by five films, so you got to carry the holders and all mm -hmm. kinds of, all kinds of stuff. And um, I had a down though where I could take, the, you know, from seeing a composition. <laughs> and I, I was always excited about this, but I could unfold the bag, unfold the camera out of the bag, put it on the tripod, and put the lens on it, and get the lens in the right spot, all within a minute. Whoa! Um, and Quick I've seen. Draw people to fumble around with tripods and four by fives and lenses and holders and everything for literally 15, 20 minutes I could before they took the exposure. 
And that was only because I did it so often. That's the only reason. It's like a soldier who, you know, can assemble their gun in 30 seconds. That would take you, you know, two hours and a manual to put together. It becomes a muscle memory. It, it is. Okay, and, so weaned on, a, do it. weaned on a tripod. So Go ahead, it, the there it was. Okay. Their, every picture was on a tripod, basically. And then all of a sudden I got sick of it, and it took so long. Mm-hmm. So I started shooting everything handheld. with it. I used a Pentax 6x7 for years. And right about the fifth year into that, we started drum scanning all of our film and digitizing it. And it wasn't until then, and I started studying the, the files of the scanned film at 100% in Photoshop, mm-hmm that I realized, oh my gosh, look at how soft that mm-hmm. is. And so I, I learned quickly that uh, tripods are very handy for making sharp data or images. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's up to the way you want to photograph and, and how much time you want to take and what you expect back from your imagery. But if you want it tack sharp, as sharp as it can be, then tripod's pretty much the only way to go. Right. I mean, you know, I, I think with your, your cameras now that you can shoot at your higher ISOs and, you know, you can shoot at a wider aperture. As digital lenses now, you know, you can get them at, at wider apertures. You have a bit more freedom, but I agree. You know, if you're doing mostly landscape or a lot of landscape, nature, photography, that's where the tripod really makes a difference because that's where you want every, you know, little ounce of sharpness you can get out of that photo. Or like we said, if you're doing HDR and you want that camera held exactly in place, shooting earlier in the day, later in the day when the light's not as strong, but, you know, is more flattering. Again, you know, you want those longer exposures. And, and that, it's the one situation where I think a tripod, not not the one, but it's one of the situations where I do think you need a tripod. Yeah, it's it's very... It's very handy, and and there's a the problem is so many uh, tripods are made um, that are just horrific to operate. So you get all kinds of various you know shapes and sizes and, and things that don't work. And and I have probably you know I don't know 20 tripods I bought over the course of three years a while back to. To get one because it, it feels good in the studio or in the shop, and then you right. go out and use it, and it falls apart or something doesn't work. And right. so, You're worse than I am with twenty. What do you? Yeah, you have yeah. a recommendation? I well, I use a. Uh, there's two that I like. One is you know of course the Gitzo uh, uh, carbon fibers. Those are great. Uh, but for the for the money, I use a Slick, and they make a great series of tripods. They make different sizes and whatnot. And uh, and then I put a really right stuff ball head on it, and uh, I'm ready to go. The so really it, the really right stuff ball heads are pretty legendary. They are. I mean, it, the whole concept though, the, the most important concept of that whole workflow is that you have this thing on your camera called an L bracket, and so you can change from a horizontal to a vertical composition by just releasing the clamp on the top of the ball head and then rotating the camera and then clamping it back in. And that's um, that's a really right stuff innovation, right? I, I don't know who who first uh, came out with an L bracket. I know there's other companies that manufacture okay. them and make them for different, uh, for different cameras. But they have perfected it, at least in my opinion. And so uh, 
and it's the lightest weight brackets that mm-hmm. I found. So, so it sinks in with the, uh, the tripod head just perfectly, and so, so well made stuff. So, so we get you, you. You like speed. You like accessories and equipment that maximizes your ability to set that camera up as quickly as possible. Yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> and what about um, sort of that trade-off between weight? You know, a heavy tripod that's going to be super sturdy versus a lighter tripod that you're more likely to take with you. Uh, where where do you fall on that? I I take the lightest I can get away okay. with, and I think that the only compromise that well that there's there's thresholds, and so when you get into the bigger lenses, and you're using a telephoto lens, then you really can't substitute a big aluminum tripod in, in a sturdy head, whatever tripod head you use, it's just got to be locked down mm-hmm. and uh, and very, very tight and rigid in the legs. Even the carbon fiber tripods uh, that say they can support heavier equipment um, aren't the best because there's little vibration mm-hmm. in there. And at 500 millimeter, let's say uh, you, you're taking a, uh, a, a 125th of a second at a 500 millimeter, you're most likely going to have vibration mm-hmm. from the carbon fiber tripod. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that's, you know, I've, I've studied it in depth, but I do know that many folks have complained about unsharp images in that scenario. And uh, you move to a aluminum tripod with a heavy head on it, mm-hmm. and it eliminates it. That's so. rock solid. Yeah, it's just rock solid. If you can afford that 500 milliliter lens, Mark, you can hire a couple of people to hold the camera. That's setting. right. Come on, absolutely. Get a couple of assistants. So, <laughs> Good point. Uh, let's talk lenses. Um, let's take you know your average enthusiast, someone who's not making a living at this, Mark, so they don't have, you know, uh, they don't have endless resources to spend. Um, they want to know sort of what lenses to invest in for landscape photography uh, what kind of recommendations do you like are there typical useful zooms are you more of a guy who likes a um, single focal length lens for the extra sharpness what do you advise i uh, i found two focal lengths that i use probably more often than any other focal lengths photographing the landscape and that's this is all equivalent to a full-size sensor Mm-hmm. On a on a 35 millimeter camera, and that would be a 200 millimeter and a 20 or 21 millimeter right in there. And so the 20 millimeter or the wide angle is going to be a totally different shot than 200, but it right. gives you such a good variety when you're out there looking at things in the landscape and and looking at different subject matter uh, that it it seems if I had two focal lengths, those would be the ones I would grab. Um, if you get so, what happens is most people get the 17 to 40 focal range, a wide zoom, and the 70 to 200, and so those those are the two lenses that I always recommend if, if you're going to go spend money. And and I know that uh, the ones I'm referring to are the L-series lenses, so mm-hmm. they're going to be quite a bit of money. And I think you asked me if somebody didn't have <laughs> a ton of money, <laughs> what lens would they buy? Um, I used to get a uh, a 28 to 200 right. that uh, Tamron made, mm-hmm. and I don't know 
offhand now if if Canon makes a uh, a non L series lens with that focal range. But that's that's what I would recommend is a is a twenty eight to two hundred thereabouts. Well, you know, it is interesting. Uh, one of my pieces of advice that I like to share with people when they're going out to photograph artistically, you know, not just shooting the kid's soccer game or the birthday party, but you're going out there to make art is to avoid sort of that middle range, you know, your 40 millimeter to 120 millimeter, whatever is in there, you know, just because that's sort of the way our eye naturally sees and focuses on things. So when you say that you normally, if you could take two focal lengths, you know, you'd take the 20 and the 200, that ties into my way of thinking, which is, you know, you show, you go for the wide, wide angle, or you go for the tending towards long telephoto because that's what allows you to create a composition different than the way you would normally perceive it if you were just going for a walk in the woods. You can achieve very different effects than what we see with the naked eye. Right. And yeah. that, that's what makes photography interesting. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%. I, I think the 200 allows you to create that depth if you get a subject that's 50 feet away and then let the background go out of focus. Mm -hmm. you're, you're basically reeling in that background mm -hmm. right up behind that person, let's say, that's 50 feet away. And so, it, you know, all of a sudden it looks like, let's say, a waterfall is behind them by two or 300 yards. It looks like they're standing under the waterfall. And so it makes for a more dramatic scene than, than if you used a 50 millimeter. You could see that the waterfall was to 300 yards behind them. And same with uh, shooting the sun, sunsets, sunrises. That extra focal length allows the sun to look like more than just, you know, a little dot in the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it reels it in much closer. So, you know, I, I feel bad. I know I told you we talked for about 30 minutes. We're almost in an hour. Because actually it's a little above an hour because we're having too much fun. We um, geeked out got, and talked shop, yes. You got, you got 10 more minutes? Sure. Well, let's talk about Smug Mug. Um, they um, are the people who are hosting the critique thread where our listeners, along with other people, but, you know, I only care about our listeners, can submit some pictures and have a chance that you'll critique them. If they put in that they heard you on this show, Mark, will you give extra consideration to, uh, to critiquing their photos? You bet. If, the, if they, uh, there's a method that, ha well, on the page, there's a, there's a description of how to post the pictures. Yep. And so if, if they put in there where they would normally put a caption or their name, they could put in there that, uh, you know, just put the word radio. I'll, I'll see that and, and take consideration. Absolutely. All right. Don't put the word radio, though. Put the word, <laughs> pod, put the word digital photography life or podcast so that Mark knows podcast. it's from us. Because God knows how many shows Mark is going to go on. I didn't even talk about the TV show you did for several years. Um, so, you, you know, if, if you are a landscape photographer or would like to get your work critiqued, um, you should really look into it. Um, if you're shy about submitting your work, as many people are, as I have been in my life, um, go read his critiques that are up there of other posters. Not posters, pictures posters, but people who have posted on that thread because um, you'll learn a lot just from reading his critiques of their work. It's an interesting process. Yeah, and I, I try not to uh, – I try to get to the right information that will help the person at the level they're at. So, you know, oftentimes there's long litany of steps in a Photoshop procedure 
Um, if, if that stuff is not interesting to you because it's all Greek, then uh, I try to get another image or a, a different type of point that's uh, um, not quite as uh, techno-nerdy, if you will, <laughs> on the next image and so forth. Yeah, it's fun to read. I actually like uh, the page a lot. Now, you also have your uh, website where people can purchase your books. They can purchase posters. They can post this, uh, purchase fine art prints. Um, and is that all managed through Smug Mug services? Uh, we have uh, two sites, and, and one is uh, uh, my site on Smug Mug, which is markmuch.com. And then uh, muchphotography.com is a, uh, a se- our separate site where we sell our books and, and posters for the National Park Service and whatnot. The uh, SmugMug site has it down. Uh, the, the reason we did that originally is that uh, the prints we make are handmade here in our studio, so it didn't quite fit in with what SmugMug was offering, which is why then I made the Mark Muge website. Right. And they've got it dialed in. So that if you have image files that you feel are worthy of uh, selling as prints, and, and that's what this is all about, then you can post them in galleries and set up a shopping cart that's very easy to set up. Even I have figured it out, so I know it's easy uh, regarding the Internet mm-hmm. technical uh, instructions. And you can sell your prints directly to anybody uh, looking at your work on the SmugMug site. And... The good thing is you don't have to print it. The file is uh, taken from you on your gallery and uploaded to the lab, and the lab gets it and prints it, and and you can even set it up to proof it, proof the colors if you want before it goes to the customer. And then uh, the print is sent directly to the customer. And so uh, it takes all the headache and, and work out of the process. Yeah, that's what I like about the service is that, you know, you don't have to become – a fulfillment house. You don't have to become a print house, uh, a framing house, a poster. You know, no matter. Uh, you know, they offer so many different services uh, that they can actually sell to the person. Um, you don't have to become a lab. You know, it, it allows you to be a photographer. Absolutely. Yeah. It's and that's very helpful it, because these inkjet printers that you buy. You know, they there's so many. Uh, enticing reasons to buy them. You want to get your hands on it and print your own images, but they're really a pain. I mean, I can't tell you that the evolution that printers have gone through have improved quite a bit, but even the newest, latest, greatest ones have issues and problems and you run out of paper or ink and there's always something going wrong. And so it's a time-consuming process. And the fact that you save your image file uh, in sRGB for the web and for printing is very handy, mm-hmm. and and you're not losing you're losing very little as far as colors go, especially in landscape photography. The uh, the prints come out looking beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see that um, you offer them through Smug Mug on a variety of sizes and uh, different coatings. Yeah, yeah, they're offering different coatings now, which is exciting. So um, it's not just the uh, the e satin as they call it, or uh, the old photo paper um, there's canvas and matte papers so it's, it's a lot of exciting stuff are you doing videos I shoot uh, video when I can yes I, I, wa- I had wanted to get into video for years and finally a camera came out that I could afford and so uh, I, I started shooting video 
And the, the biggest problem with shooting video is it just opens up Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. So you get the camera, then you got to get all the, the equipment system, yep. to move the camera smoothly and learn how to do all that. And it's, uh, but it's exciting. It's a whole other field. Right, just in case you're not challenged enough. That's right. In, in five years, it'll all be 3D photography and video. So yeah, you'll be yeah, learning that be. soon. It, with your phone. That's true. That's true. Listen, I always say I love my iPhone. I just wish it was a better camera. But, right, um, right. you know, they can, you, it can now shoot and edit video. So it's all converging really quickly. And, of course, the new high-end DSLRs are incorporating HD video. Mm-hmm. which is wow. crazy. Yeah, it's uh, so I, it, it's funny timing you say this. I just sold my uh, Sony EX1 on eBay, and it was bought yesterday, um, and I'm going to get a Canon 5D Mark II. Oh, you are? Okay. And just to replace it, the uh, you know, there's a whole debate over the two philosophies of video footage, and so it's, it's just as heated and exciting as it was over <laughs> RAW and JPEG, yep. if you will. Yeah. But... Uh, so, yeah, I'll continue shooting video. I love it. And uh, I've started investing a little bit in the equipment outside of the camera that will uh, get me the shots. And what about editing it software? What are you working with? Uh, I use Final Cut. Well, Mark and I were just finishing up that interview when Skype decided to crash on me. I can't get it going again. So I've just called Mark back on my speakerphone. I'm hanging it up, holding it up to the mic. Um, say hello to everybody, Mark. And that's about as good as the sound quality is going to get. So considering how much we geeked out, I guess this is the fates telling us it's time to say goodbye, Mark. Yeah, I thought maybe it was a hint <laughs> that I was talking too much. No, I was having a great time. We'll have to have you back. Sounds good, and I appreciate all the good questions. And uh, check out scottsphotoblog.com. I'll have links to everything we talked about, uh, to all of Mark's sites. Uh, check out his workshops. Check out the books. Uh, look at the fine art prints, which are just staggering. And definitely, if you are at all serious about your landscape uh, photography, submit some of your pictures to uh, the Much University, uh, hosted by Smug Mug, and maybe you'll be lucky enough to get some feedback from the master himself. Mark, thank you very much for coming on today and being so generous with your time. You're welcome, Scott. It was uh, my pleasure. I had fun. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you to our guest, Mark, for appearing on the show. And thank you to Scott for sparing my vocal cords this time around. And that about wraps it up. So until next week, bye-bye.